Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey everybody, Ready Rich here. We're all still out of town. Penn's in Australia. I'm out east. Gudo's on the cruise ship. I don't remember where Matt said he was. So we're airing part two of this conversation with Harrison Greenbaum. We'll be joining them mid-topic where Harrison is asked about Penn and Teller's methods for coming up with magic based on the ideas that they're thinking. So if you're lost where they start out, you'll want to go back and listen to part one of this episode from earlier this week. Enjoy. Sisters and siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School, starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Ludo. Penn, Matt Reddy, Rich, and I are broadcasting from Show Creator Studio South here in Las Vegas. Penn's still in Australia, so on today's show, we're running part two of an episode of Harrison Greenbaum's podcast, Who Books That? Penn is the guest. The show was recorded early 2020, the video pandemic, and here he is preaching. So, it's Harrison Greenbaum. And I'll give you another example that absolutely flips me out. You know, um, uh, it's no secret I'm a bit of a Bob Dylan fan. And um, I, I do look into Bob Dylan and his process a lot. And there's the album Blood on the Tracks, considered by many to be Bob's best album. And the um, story behind it is always told that um, – Bob broke up with Sarah. He was going through a divorce. He went into the studio, ripped open his heart, and there we have blood on the tracks, the most honest, true, direct emotion. And Bob's a genius, and he poured this out to us. And I believe that from when I was in high school when it came out to every time I listened to it. And then all of a sudden, these rumors start circulating that there's a notebook you know, we had all just thought that Bob wrote out the lyrics and then read them on a music stand. Well, there's a notebook. And then that notebook starts getting found out and turns out it's a thick notebook and that Bob writes really little. And there are 50 versions of every song. <laughs> exactly. And then we find out now that the archives are being set up in Oklahoma for the Bob Dylan Museum and people uh, people that I know have gone through the archives, there were three notebooks. <laughs> Every goddamn line on the album, he has five alternative lines to. Now, this is a guy whose heart is broken, is falling apart, and is walking to the studio to just pour his heart out except he's filling three notebooks with every different possibility. It's one of the reasons that I now believe that the word genius is just an excuse to be lazy. Right, exactly. Right? Bob Dylan's a genius. No, Bob Dylan's willing to work harder than you. You're a lazy motherfucker. He's doing the job, you know. That's the thing. And the same thing with anybody you bring out as genius. You know, we did a movie called uh, Tim's Vermeer, 
you know, and everybody wants to say Vermeer was a genius with light. He just painted. No, he didn't. He invented shit. Right. He worked his ass off. You know, anybody who used that word. And of course, a great example of this coming full circle is Andy Kaufman. Oh, he was just a genius. He was just a brave genius who also worked his ass off. Yeah. So you've got that combination. It's so easy to say, I'll get inspired and I'll be honest and I'll be brave. But you've also got to do the work. Yeah, it's weird that we romanticize that, that idea of just, oh, he, you know, Jack Kerouac just pounded out on the road in one sitting. When the real, the real thing that we should be uh, heroizing, that's a word, are the people that are putting the actual work in and are, are working their asses off. Yeah, we also know that Kerouac thing is a complete and utter lie. Yeah, exactly. It's even a bigger lie than that because he took the trip in order to write the book. <laughs> He had notes, he had notebooks full of shit. And the idea that he sat down on, uh, what is it, Benzedrine and right. played St. Matthew's Passion. And put the, to one roll and just started yeah, typing. Just started typing and poured it out. And that kind of ignores the, you know, the five edits that went into place and, and all of that. And that is a, that's probably your best example because that's where one where um, the creator was actually lying about it. I mean, Bob didn't lie to us about blood on the tracks. He just didn't tell us anything. But Kerouac actually said, I sat down and banged this out. Right. <laughs> he even told us the drug he took. <laughs> no, it's wild. And I, it's funny because one of the reasons that when I was in college, I shifted to stand up was I always said, you know, the, if I wanted to talk about abortion, there was no abortion magic trick. But I know in stand up, I can write jokes about it. And I wanted people to talk about the things that I had ideas about. And it was only later on when I tried to marry the two that I realized there, there could be an abortion magic trick. Oh, sure. So it, I, I love hearing that from your side of like, you want a surveillance magic trick. And there's it's just about sitting down and figuring out what, how do you express that idea and not letting the tricks bully you around, but letting the idea dictate everything from that point forward. And the, uh, and, uh, and, you know, we wanted to burn the flag. We wanted to talk about the first amendment. So we burnt the flag, you know, we had a bit of it. And the thing is that you have to, uh, you have to have, the bravery to go into the studio and pull out your guitar. And you also have to have the five notebooks you worked on, you know, and if you're going to work on an abortion magic trick, you want to do it pure and from your heart. And you also better be learning every magic trick anybody else ever did about anything right. because you're going to be, you're going to be using parts of that for your, uh, for, for your trick. That's from your heart. Yeah. Hopefully not baby parts, but uh <laughs> Uh, but speaking about these big issues, surveillance, abortion, you had a show, uh, BS or Bullshit, depending on where you downloaded it or watched it. Um, and there was, uh, who did you work on that show with? Well, uh, Star Price, Starling Price, was the producer. And uh, Star uh, and a whole team of producers worked uh, very, very hard on that show. And uh, then we did it. It was, it was the L.A. crowd and the Vegas crowd. And what they would do was they would, um, we would work on the subjects we wanted to do and the angle we wanted to take. Uh, we would do that in Vegas with the producer and work it out. And then those would all to be clear with showtime and go back and forth and blah, blah, blah. Then we came up with the uh, 13 we were going to do. Uh, a producer was assigned to each show. And that producer would um, do all the interviews and lay the whole thing out. Uh, usually doing the voiceover uh, in an impersonation of me. <laughs> and then they would send it to us and uh, Godot and uh, me and Teller, Michael Godot, would watch what they did. And then 
in some cases do the exact opposite point. <laughs> that happened like three times. We had a thing on um, on uh, dating uh, and people trying to get laid. Uh, and the point of view the producer had was these sad, lonely, pathetic people doing this horrible thing. <laughs> and we watched it and went, no, these wonderful heroes trying to share their heart with somebody else, trying to have sex is a, is a heroic thing to do. It's not a pathetic thing to do. And um, uh, people who, who can't make a connection and are trying to, that's, that's everything. You know, that's Don Quixote. That's everything. Yeah. You know, that's all that matters. Well, uh, I, I believe everything you're saying, but I do want to uh, double check that because I have a special guest. Uh, he's a juggler. Uh, he's been mentioned a couple times already. It's Michael Goudeau, everybody. <laughs> Hello, Michael Goudeau. Uh, <laughs> I was just telling them, I was just telling them how, uh, how when the dating show came in on bullshit, yeah. we reversed the point of view. I know that's crazy. Totally, totally backwards. <laughs> it's crazy but, to get a show like that and 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 just go. Well, we're going to use the same shots and interviews. We're just going to change the voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't do any editing to change it. We just rewrote the words. <laughs> and we did crazy. this thing. There's a lie on bullshit that's such a phenomenal lie, which is we commented on the show that we were doing. So we would we would send someone out to do the interviews and the boom mic would show. Now, anybody else that is a boom mic showing in the shot, they say that's no good. We can't use that. And we would do it and go, what the fuck's that boom mic doing there? Right. And the first time we did it, I expected the audience to go, it's your show. You can't do that. You can't say it's someone else's fault when it's clearly your fault. Your name's on the show. And we're <laughs> Oh, they're okay with that. Uh, lamp shading. When you put, when you instead of fixing the problem, you just draw attention to it. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Hang a lantern on it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, so uh, we would do this, and so we would get it in, and that's big. And then we would change all the voiceover, and then we would change the interstitial bits. And it was really, uh, and I, I want to be very careful how I present this because the people in LA were not shut eye. They knew what we did and how we worked, and they would try to get the voice. But we would also do that. So it, was a, it was a wonderful collaboration, but a collaboration out of time. Right. You know, um, we weren't in the room kicking ideas around. <laughs> there we go. We weren't in the, in the room kicking ideas around. We were. Um, they would do their idea. We would do ours. Then it would go back and forth and back and forth. And I also want to say because these are the people you never praise. Um, the people that we liked the most on bullshit were the lawyers. Yeah. Because um, we did not have a successful lawsuit in eight years. <laughs> they protected us completely, and they protected us in ways you wouldn't expect. We would get notes back from the producer going, uh, can you call this guy a stupid motherfucker instead of a liar? <laughs> and we'd go, Okay. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and they would say, put more obscenity in because that's harder to attack. Uh, we loved working with the lawyers. And the other thing was, and I, I, I bring this up, I believe, every time bullshit's discussed. But one of the things that changed me the most doing bullshit was my respect for Christians. Because when I pitched the show, I pitched the show fairly cynically. 
I pitched the show saying, you know, people will hate us, but they'll still watch it. And I remember, uh, and I, you know, these are friends of mine. I, I, I'm not really showing disrespect, but um, Richard Dawkins would do a uh, uh, YouTube bit where he would read his hate mail and brag about his hate mail. And I remember when I first started getting death threats from bullshit, the temptation is to say, oh, look how violent the Christians are. But you're not doing that. You're not doing that. You're actually saying, here's a mentally ill person who is identifying with another group, and I'm believing that person's lie. I'm buying into their, their inaccuracy. They're not speaking for Christians. They're mentally ill, dangerous people who are suffering and one of some of the words they use are Christian words. And we started getting letters from Christians. And we expected to open them and laugh and show how brave we were, that we were standing up and we were telling truth to power. And we'd open up these letters and they'd say, we love your show. We love the sincerity. We love the heart. We know you're speaking from what you believe. And that's really wonderful. And we believe differently. And we're praying for you, yours in Christ, and signed. Yeah. And we went, oh, wait a minute. These they are really the wicked good people. <laughs> What's that? They kicked all the fun out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Turned well, it into love. The death threats, I assume, would be uh, addressed to either Showtime or Penn & Teller. Were you able to be a force? Were, were you pushing them to be more extreme? Were you the modern yeah, yeah, exactly. in the middle? My name never came up in any of them. <laughs> <laughs> go more. Go Even ahead. The prop guy did. Even the prop guy got threatened at some point. I didn't. <laughs> Somebody is asking in the comments. Uh, I know the answer to this, but uh, they're they're asking about the Scientology episode. That was one of the episodes. That, one of the topics you were not allowed to address on the show. Yeah. Well, you may know this story. I was out to I was out to dinner with um, with Matt and Trey, and uh, we were talking. And I happened to mention casually <laughs> that um, that we had talked to Showtime, and they wouldn't let us do Scientology because they thought it was too dangerous. And then Matt and Trey went and did their big Scientology show on on uh, on South Park, which you may have saw as a brilliant show on Scientology, I saw as clearly a fuck you to me. <laughs> it was, oh, you can't pull this off. Watch us do it. And they even had Isaac Hayes, who was a Scientologist, yeah. working for them, who they caused a huge rift with him, and it was, it was a horrible thing. Now, some people thought there was a secret cabal between um, Mythbusters, bullshit, and South Park, uh, <laughs> that we somehow got together in a in a back room and planned our assault on some of these things. And the answer is yes, there was. Mm. <laughs> nice. You know, they, they would. Uh, you know, Trey would call and say, "You guys are doing Alcoholics Anonymous." And we'd say, "Yeah, we're doing that this year." And they went, "What points are you hitting?" <laughs> we'll we'll hit the other ones. And then Adam. Savage or Mythbusters would call up and say, what angle have you got on this? And I'd say, we're doing this. And they'd say, we're doing this. And we'd go out and do that. So it sometimes seemed like those three shows were in cahoots, not tremendously, but a little bit. 
I mean, I'm friends with Adam and friends, I'm friends with both Trey and Matt. Does it, does it seem slightly disheartening though, that even with three shows attacking issues, like you did an, ep uh, an episode on vaccines, there's episodes on talking to the dead and those people are still around and some would argue, you know, amplifying their voice on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Is, is that just a testament to how dumb people are or how insidious those ideas are? How come those, how, how can all these shows hit these things and have people still believe that? Well, first of all, you have to figure into that, that we might be wrong. Mm. I mean, we, we have to always start, you know, there's all these people in skeptics groups that talk about how do we convince the other side? How do you convince UFO people that they're wrong? And my answer is always, we'll start with the possibility that you might be wrong. Um, because you've got to start with that. Yeah. I, I can't talk about atheism unless I talk about the possibility that very, very smart, brilliant people with compassion and love and heart believe this stuff I don't believe. And I'm not magic. I don't have all the answers. So you got to start with that, that we could be wrong. So before you get too disheartened, we could be wrong. And I think uh, Godot will agree with me on this. I can't think of one show where we weren't wrong. At least some, yeah. Yeah, at least some. At least and some. also, you're, you, can't, you can't blame the victims. Those people aren't stupid. The people yeah. presenting these ideas are slick. Right. They're working on it. They've got five notebooks in the back room. <laughs> <laughs> the Bob Dylan of uh, vaccine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, the other thing is, if you want to be sad, every person we attacked on uh, bullshit reported back, everyone that reported back to us, they were happy and they felt they got their, uh, they got, um, they got their position pushed out more. Now, the thing I, if I wanted to tell you what I was most proud of in bullshit is that we did not have, and correct me if I'm wrong, Goodo, and I'm sure you will. Um, we did not have one person ever come to us and say that their position was misstated. Did we? No, we did not. And also, we didn't have anyone say, you edited it so that I looked stupid. Yeah. But can you imagine that? Doing eight years of a show called Bullshit, every single person say my position was presented fairly? Now, yeah, the VR is different. Here. I said, then there's, this, then there's this asshole. And you're wrong. And fuck you. But when they were on screen, their position was presented accurately. And I do not believe... That is true for Michael Moore. I do not believe that's true for Sasha Baron Cohen. I do not believe. Um, I do not believe that's that's true for Bill Maher. Right. I don't believe that those people. Now, I'm not saying that what they did was wrong, but I'm saying it's not what I do. Yeah. No, and I remember. I, I, I was uh, producing for an ABC reality show, and it was it was a lot of pressure from the higher ups to edit just to fit the story. And I said, I can't be involved in the project. I was like, I, this is the edit that shows what happened. And if you need an edit that shows what didn't happen, I can't be in the room for it. And it's there's a tremendous amount of pressure. Did Showtime ever pressure you? No, they, they were on your side for that. No, they weren't on our side. Showtime, I don't think, knew we were doing the show. <laughs> uh, it was bought by a person who then left. And we were the only show that wasn't taken off right away. And then another regime came in, and we were still the only show that made it. So there was nobody in the room who felt like they were that was their baby. So people wouldn't even come to Vegas. I mean, the suits would come in like one day to see the shooting. 
we were totally the inmates in charge of the asylum. And they couldn't advertise us because the title of the show was bullshit. So they just said, oh, fuck them. Let them do what they want. Who cares? <laughs> and that was the best thing you could possibly get out of, out of people, you know. And uh, uh, so we, we, you know, we, we did the show for eight years. I, I want to say this because I, I, it's so hard for me to say. It's so, I don't want to say this. I did two tours of duty on Celebrity Apprentice. And as far as I can tell, Celebrity Apprentice was uh, edited accurately. Hmm. Uh, all the stuff you're talking about of making the edit go with the storyline. Now, obviously, whenever you tell a narrative, you're lying. We can start with that, right? Every story you've ever told, every story I've told here to you tonight is in some way a lie because I made a narrative on it and real world doesn't have a narrative. Having said that, the story that was told on, um, on Celebrity Apprentice was a story that fit what I experienced when I was there. Now, they did take three hours of edits right. to make Donald Trump talk for one minute. You know, they did do that shit. But I'm just saying that the storyline, it's interesting because the other reality shows I've been on, that's not been true. Mm. And it's so funny to me that the show that is the basest and most unpleasant is actually honest. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad right. it would be too ironic if Donald Trump's own show was fake news. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think we've got enough ir irony with our president that we don't need more. And also, Michael, you go way back with Penn to like yeah. San Francisco days. Uh -huh. uh, uh, definitely, as, as we uh, the show usually goes till about eight fifteen. So if you have questions, pop them into the side. I want to make sure uh, all the people who are watching get their questions answered. Um, and I have a couple more questions for you, Penn. But Michael, I have this photo that you sent me. I'd love for you to explain to me what is happening. It's uh, an incredible photograph. <laughs> <laughs> That's me and Penn and our friend Tarzan at Dairy Queen. <laughs> what are your questions? <laughs> well, are you allowed to just take a monkey into a Dairy Queen? Is that something they, they permit? <laughs> yeah, they, they did, oddly enough. <laughs> well, it's not a Dairy Queen. It's a Vegas Dairy Queen. Yeah. <laughs> That's an important distinction. That's also my wife in the front corner. <laughs> and how did the monkey end up in this situation? How did you, or were you guys working with the monkey for something? No, we had a friend who owned a, a, a chimp. It was a very young chimp at that point. This chimp is two years old and uh, was it was very well behaved. And, and we hung out with him for a year. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, we went to a restaurant. If you sat outdoors at a restaurant, the chimp was allowed to join you. And he had been incredibly well-trained. He would drink from a straw. He would uh, tortilla chips and dip them in guacamole very gently. And, you know, no double dipping. It, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing. And speaking of animals, uh, I, you just sent me this photo of a duck. I don't know if you can explain why, why yeah. I have a photo of a duck. <laughs> this... Uh, we were doing a TV show called The Sin City Spectacular. In between shows one afternoon, Penn got a, a lunch and his potato looked like a duck. And since <laughs> that day, five times a year, he talks about how his potato looked like a duck. <laughs> this you know, struck him as the duckiest potato in the world. And so I just happened to find a photo of it today and 
reminded me of all those times he said it. Okay. Remember that? They don't look it's like very artistic. I like that it's in black and white. It's shot beautifully. It's the best. It's very artistic. Yeah. Harrison, that potato looks like a duck. <laughs> <laughs> I can what see that? the eye for sure. <laughs> That's amazing, Michael. Uh, any other uh, thoughts about Penn you like to share bef uh, before we uh, shift back? You know what? Uh, just watching the show with you, Harrison, uh, I can tell you that I'm lucky enough to sit and listen to Penn talk every week in a podcast. And today reminded me why even more than when I'm on the podcast. <laughs> it's just I know you've known Penn for so many years. Yeah. Uh, how is the Penn now different and the same from the Penn you met yeah. in the beginning? <laughs> 25 years ago, he was kind of a loud asshole. <laughs> now he's a, Wait, so what changed? He's a hippie, <laughs> ethical vegan who meditates. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, you know, I've been really lucky. He's, uh, he knows more than anyone on earth and uh, has always been really kind. And it's, it's, a, it's an amazing set of growth to see. I, it's hard to explain it. I mean, it's an amazing difference, and it's still the same loudmouth asshole. But it's it's a really sweet loudmouth asshole now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing, uh, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. They can follow you on Instagram. Gudo the Juggler, G O U E E A. What happened? What happened to that damn juggler? <laughs> that's uh, Twitter. Twitter's the damn juggler. <laughs> oh, the damn juggler. Nice. Uh, and also you can catch them on Penn Sunday School, which is still taping even in the uh, during the, the pandemic quarantine. So definitely keep downloading those episodes. Michael, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank We're trying me. to brand it the pandemic. The pandemic, <laughs> nice. That's amazing. Hey, don't forget, I wrote this book called Random. It's going to be out in the fall to regular people. But to y'all, you can get it earlier, a signed hardcover book. Plus this other book, a chap book, it's called, of four short stories that aren't published anywhere else that are coming out ahead of time. Autographed, all this stuff, plus dice, because the idea of random is dice. And uh, to the Patreon uh, people of Penn Sunday School, we're giving a special discount that's more than it costs you to join Patreon. So join Patreon to support us here at Penn Sunday School and also gives you a good deal on the book I wrote, Random, which I... I think it's pretty good, and I people are talking about my coat about uh, making this into a TV show. Uh, so uh, you can get on the ground floor of uh, Random. I think it's really good. Now back to Harrison Greenbaum. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Uh, you, we, were, we were talking about TV and, and, uh, uh, and editing and things. W when it comes to Fool Us, that one feels like of all the, you, you've hosted game shows like uh, Identity on NBC. I found some old episodes of that. You've been on game shows, Celebrity Apprentice. Fool and Us I won on Jeopardy. Could we point that out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems like, though, Fool Us is one of the few, if only, sort of game shows where you're kind of the winner no matter what. Is that because you, well, is that a conscious choice because of all the stuff you've done in the past? We're talking about, um, you know, stuff starting conceptually. And Fool Us started very conceptually. 
can we do can we do a uh, competition show, talent show that's kind, uh, that is com- based on camaraderie? And can we do one where the people actually know what they're talking about? Now, uh, unless you show me a talent show where Tiny Tim, Bob Dylan, and Sun Ra win, I don't want to see it. I don't care what hacks who put shit on the top 10 care about art. I don't want to hear what they say about who's going to be successful. In Fool Us, you'll notice we don't judge negatively. We don't talk about success. We don't talk about showmanship unless it's pleasant. All we talk about is one simple clear-cut, objective rule. Did you fool us? That's all. That's the only question. Did you fool us? Not, did you fool everybody? Not, was it the best trick we've ever seen? Did you fool us? And um, that leads us to something that I wanted to be a show that was honest and, and kind and gracious. And I'm so glad people have noticed that. Because uh, uh, there was a lot of pressure on us at first. Let's let's rip some people apart. That was really, especially when we were doing it over in England. They said, you know, Penn, you did bullshit. You can be mean. You did Stern. You did Letterman. You're Joe Rogan. You're a tough guy. Uh, rip them to shreds, to quote my friend Debbie Harry. Rip them to shreds. And uh, we just said, no, I'm not going to do that. We won't do that. We won't do that. There are a couple times when people lied to us and hung tough and wouldn't back down where I have, I think it was only twice where I said, okay, we'll play this way. And then I insisted that they edit it out. (laughs) Made sure that that person on stage realized, you know, uh, as the, the, uh, the great rockabilly star said, don't make me nervous. I'm holding a baseball bat. (laughs) (laughs) I've always wondered, because I feel like, Throughout the career, you, you like the way you address secrets was always the secrets aren't important. You know, cups and balls are transparent. When you're on the first appearance on Letterman, is these are how all the tricks work. Is there how do you reconcile that approach of like the secrets don't matter to having a show where the whole thing is do you have a secret from us? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, I don't feel that as a uh, as a, as a conflict at all. Um, I feel that um, at the base level of magic, it's did you fool us? And then if you want to go find out more or you want to play around with that, that's okay. I have, you know, you always have um, uh, who you're talking to when you're doing a bit. You know, you the New York Times is written for the ideal New York Times reader. <laughs> and the audience that I'm working for, uh, I have a 14-year-old daughter who's interested in magic. And I picture myself as a 14-year-old girl in the Midwest who does not have a magic club around and does not have access to magic books, who watches the show and wants to learn magic. If she takes notes on everything I say and she searches those on the internet, she will find herself going through gateway after gateway after gateway. And soon she'll be talking to you and asking you, how do you do a second deal? And you'll be working with her on that. And that's what I want to do. I think that you want to, in magic, stop people from um, from finding out what they don't want to know 
but encourage them to find out if they do want to know. If you want to wrap this up into one tight bundle, if you want to listen to Blood on the Tracks and say, that's a man pouring out his heart when he had a divorce, that's a beautiful, beautiful way to see that. And if you want to go to Oklahoma and go to the library and go through the notebooks to find out what each line meant and how he worked on it, that's also a beautiful way to see it. There isn't a wrong way. And I think, you know, one of the things that you've done is, is you've pointed out all the ways magic has been bad and how <laughs> magicians, uh, especially the sort of, I think the greasy tuxedo wearing dove holding types. Yeah. Uh, and you've been doing that for 45 years. Do you think magic has gotten better in that time? Or is there, uh, and what, what still needs to change? Well, magic, uh, the reason, you know, there's no mystery as to why there are, uh, there are fewer great magicians. The reason is there are fewer magicians. I always say to people, you know, if I asked you to start naming musicians alive and dead, you'd be able to name 10,000. The average person on the street with magicians, they're going to go to six or seven. You know, maybe they're going to get to 10 if you count Siegfried Roy's two. You know, <laughs> maybe they're going to get there. But um, so you have a smaller pool, which is also why you end up with people that are so different commenting on one another. I mean, um, David Copperfield's a friend of mine. David Blaine's a friend of mine. If we were working in music, we would never comment on one another. You know, you would never get George Clinton to give his opinion on Kenny G. It just wouldn't come up. <laughs> they're, they're in, they're in they're like different areas. I'm like just, a country music fan, and they so going to a rock and roll concert would be weird, but people just see magic. magic yeah, exactly. Catch all. Exactly. So I think that uh, when you've got a field that has so many fewer people, um, uh, because it's harder and because it's less universal, you're going to get, uh, it's going to go more slow motion, you know? Uh, so, uh, uh, but magic has gotten, uh, I mean, first of all, David Blaine, although not what I do and not to my taste, his street magic changed magic in a way, uh, the late 20th century uh, was the biggest uh, change in magic since, uh, you know, since baby Houdini. Um not, not my favorite form, but still, I think, the best TV magic special ever done. Um, and we're now- There's a connection, because you, you, you've always spoken about your magic doesn't, it doesn't presuppose it's more intelligent than the audience. So a lot of mm -hmm. people out there, I'm smarter than you, I know more than you, look how much I know, and or I know something you don't know. Yeah. And Dave, David Blaine's fits that in the sense that the stars were the audience themselves. So you guys yeah. have an equal sense of humility of, the audience is the more important. I'm here for you. You're approaching it very different ways. Very different. And it feels like there's a connection in that. Absolutely, way. absolutely. And to, to who, who, there's there's a real kind of um, honesty about that. You know, I always quote Jerry Seinfeld and all magic. Here's a quarter. Now it's gone. You're a jerk. Now right. it's back. You're an idiot. Show's over. You don't do that in the other art form. You know, you, you don't. I mean, you don't have smugness with guitar players, with the possible exception of Eddie Van Halen. You know. <laughs> You know, Keith Richards doesn't go, wow, this and you can't. He goes, isn't the music beautiful? And um, I think we're seeing that more and more magicians are, you know, we just did a thing for our uh, TV special, CW, 
the trick we do with L and Dakota fanning, um, that trick, when we, when we wrote it, Teller said, you know, the instant that goes on YouTube, the first comment is going to be explaining how this trick is done. <laughs> and uh, he said, because it's people will be able to bust it and they'll put it right in there. And then there was a pause. Uh, Teller and I were speaking over Zoom. And Teller went, yeah, that would be good. I went, yeah, that would be great. And uh, I think there's a kind of sense uh, that's changed really very much over the past 30 years of letting into magic. Letting, let, let's accept the fact that everybody knows the term palm. You know, yeah. everybody knows when it's a perfectly ordinary deck of cards that it isn't. And with all we can play with that because in art, you're looking, even in the freak show, you're looking for universals. You know, and one of the universals is that everybody had a magic set when they were 12. Right. Just like everybody sang a song. And we can do that and be okay. And it doesn't have to be combative. And it can still be fun. It can still fool people. Yeah. Alan Rubin asked, he said, Penn, all these years later, with you doing all the talking and teller silent, I think you ever regret going down that road. Do you think you would have had the same level of success over the years if you didn't have that set up? Well, I had nothing to do with that decision, uh, working silently before I met him. So uh, I was just uh, I was just joining in there. I don't know. You know, you, there, there's no counterfactual. We don't get to run the control group. We have no idea. You know, people say to me, um, uh, you're so brave to be out of the closet as an atheist. And boy, uh, how has that damaged you? And I just go, well, you know, I've been very successful and very happy. We don't know. Maybe the non-atheist Penn Gillette is more successful than Brad Pitt and the Beatles together. Maybe that's out there. Seems really <laughs> unlikely to me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't think that Penn and Teller have been so much more successful than we planned for, expected, or deserved. I don't think that a change could have made us more successful. I mean, we've already... You're already the luckiest two people on the planet. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, when I did my first big TV thing was Last Comic Standing. And the thing, the moment that jumped out was Norm MacDonald uh, attacking me for making fun of the Bible on television, which was a weird moment because Norm, Norm is still one of my comedy heroes. I still think he's one of the funniest comics out there. But it was very weird to have him go after me and say, he said, you know, it's not brave to make fun of the Bible. And I was like, I think what you're doing is proof that it is. Uh, <laughs> is the amount of flack that I got from him uh, both during and after on Twitter and from the, you know, the Christian press, uh, I think uh, undercut his point significantly. But I always wonder, is there a secret to being outwardly atheist or making fun of some of these sacred cows and, and still being able to have them come to the show or, or not at least negatively affect you? I don't know. I just don't know. Uh, I know that, um, you know, uh, Lorne Michaels said that, um, you couldn't ever judge the ideas and the words. They all were in context. And the example he used, and this is an example that's useless to everybody listening to this, and forgive me, but um, on the old show Laugh-In from the 60s, when I was a child, there were two major women on there. There was Goldie Hawn, and there was Judy Karn. And Judy Karn and Goldie Hawn both did lines. Uh, they both did jokes. 
And Lauren Michaels said uh, they would write a joke. And if Judy Karn did it, they would get all these letters about her being awful and a slut and she should be banned. And Goldie Hawn could do a joke about having sex with an entire football team and they got letters of sweet she <laughs> And Warren uh, brought that up to me when he was talking about, you know, Sam Cannon and Penn and Teller alternated on Saturday Night Live, the, the same spot. And he said, you know, big guys yelling and yet Kennison's yelling and Penn Gillette's yelling are entirely different things. And even the same sentence are a different thing. So you find out, I mean, I know for a fact that I've said things more brutal than Richard Dawkins has said on the same stage. And people will, you know, we've been together on the same stage. People raise their hand during the Q&A period and talk about how Dawkins is closed-minded and I'm not. And I, I just don't know. I mean, I just don't know how um, you say this stuff, you know, and uh, and you have to learn, and this is the wrong way to say it, but I think you'll understand what I mean, what you can get away with. Yeah. You know, you learn who the audience thinks you are. The, the weird thing is that I'm someone who talks about lying all the time and who demonstratively lies in public in order to accomplish magic tricks. And they did some survey and found out that people believe, people think that I believe what I'm saying at the highest level of, uh, of belief in the study they did. That Not that I'm right, but that <laughs> I believe what I'm saying. You, see, you understand there's a big difference yeah, there. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, I don't know, I don't know why uh, I uh, I come across as sincere on certain things. You know, I I know that I've been friends with Bill Maher forever, and Bill Maher brags about being cynical, and I don't like that label at all. And there's a certain kind of sincerity that's always been very very important to me. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean it, it's weird. Like uh, when I the trick that I did on on fool us the with the Bible and smoke and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, I love I that. A, I did it at a magic convention, and there was another performer who cursed during the show, like usually dropped an f bomb. But the complaints all came to me because they said I, the the fact that I was alleging that maybe the Bible is 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 not real was was more da damaging to the children than than the language. Well, and they're absolutely right. <laughs> if, they, if they want their children to grow up believing the exact same things they believe, probably true. Yeah, no, I, it's it's amazing. There does seem to be this connection though, where magicians tend to be more skeptical, more reasonable than in other art forms. And I, I wonder if that comes from that's just how our brains are working because we it's all about do we know how to convince people and influence people? Yeah, you, we you know we spend a lot of time thinking about how to deliberately mislead people. And it's hard to think about that without seeing others doing it. Yeah. And uh, I, th this has gone, uh, this is our longest episode, so I don't want to take too much of your time. <laughs> uh, but the last question we always ask everybody, because there are young magicians who are watching, um, wh what advice would you give to them? I know you've given a ton of uh, incredible advice throughout this, but is there any other advice you give to a young magician who's just getting started uh, and wants to make this their, their career? Read. And uh, I want to defend that a little bit. I am not being an old guy that says watching YouTube videos to learn magic and watching videos to learn magic is bullshit and don't do it. Do it, but also read. 
because when you read, it becomes yours. You know, uh, we've all had the experience of reading a book and seeing the movie. And when they show you the movie, they take it away from you. You know, Moby Dick exists in my head. I have my own Ahab. I have my I have my own Starbuck. I have my own stub. And what they mean and the emotion lives there in my, my brain. The most interactive thing you can do is to read. And Teller and I get so upset because some of the stuff that's published is published just as here's how you do the trick. And what we want to do is um, random access. There's no better random access than reading. You can skim down and say, here's the, here's the kernel I want. And I want to take this and put it here and put it here and put it here. And if you want to learn to be creative, reading magic books some of the greatest stuff will be stuff that you misunderstand. <laughs> you know, you yeah. read it, you read it wrong, but then it's yours. Yeah, my closer came from uh, mishearing somebody. Yeah, it's great. I thought they said something else. I was like, oh, that's okay. And then that led me to a bunch of things. And then when I went back to the sort of original inspiration, it was nothing like what I thought it was. Right. That's, you know, there's a story that Martin Mull tells. You know, Martin Mull, the great comedian, great guitar player, is most successful as an artist. And he was a professor at RISD. And uh, he said that uh, they had a, a uh, they had a uh, student who said that his his style was too much like Van Gogh. He was trying to be too much like Van Gogh. And the professor said to him, um, here's what we're going to do. We have a Van Gogh. And I'm going to set up in our collection so you can go in there all night and paint. And don't try to be different from Van Gogh. Try to copy him absolutely perfectly. <laughs> and the places you fail, that's your style. <laughs> so uh, I kind of think that when you read, especially with magic, but with everything, you allow your own interpretation to happen. And that will allow you to grow into an artist a little easier. And I'm not saying don't watch the videos. I'm not saying don't do that. Do that too. You know, it's it's like when parents say don't play video games. Yes, play video games, but also read and also play music. Do everything. And uh, for, for magic, I would say to uh, to read and um, and also try very hard even in the earliest stages, to try not to take something word for word, move for move. Try to make little changes in it so you're not, I'm not even talking about the morality of stealing, I'm talking about the artistic aspect of it. Try to put a little bit of you in everything, even at the early stages. No, I think that's incredible advice. I mean, I, I, I always talk about the iPhone theory of magic where people think that changing the case is not enough. Uh, <laughs> you have to reinvent the iPhone. And I think reading definitely... If you, if, you, if you have to build an iPhone yourself from parts, you're probably going to end up with a very different device. Exactly. Penn, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Penn Gillette, at Penn Gillette, two L's, two T's. Thank you so, so very much for joining me. Uh, it, it, it's, it, you've been a huge inspiration to me since I was a kid, not to make you feel old. I am old. Thank you. But, uh, it means the world, and thank you so, so very much. And there you have it. That was Penn Sunday School. Cha-cha again. Take it back, y'all, now.
know we love you. Matt, do you have anybody to thank? Oh, yeah. People who make this show possible. Loyal members of the congregation like Ovi Dimitrian Jr., Jeremy R. 22, Winter Wiakowski, Michael Cohen, Dr. Scooplittle, Joe Mastrangelo, Jeremiah Jenkins, Nate Soloway, Kelly Reeves, and last but not least, Jesse Miller, Alexander Hoffman, Danny Olwine, Julian Webb, Sean Magruder, Stephen Volcano, Jim the Naked Magician still selling the domain nakedmagician.com, Scooped Mids, and Paul McBride. Thank you all so much. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.